You're on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. You're listening to Scotty. You're listening to Behind the Lines. And today, today we are going to be joined by Mr. Jason McLeod from the Australian West Papua Association. Are you there, Jason? Hello, Scotty. G'day, listeners. West Papua, it's a... It's a an issue that's been going on for a long time now, but um, we don't hear a lot about it. Um, now, it's a it's a bit of a trick on where to start on this question because, I don't know, I heard someone remark while I was researching this that uh, there's sort of a little bit of a link to almost every sort of struggle that humans have got going on in West Papua. It's like an epicentre. Do you reckon that would be a fair thing to say? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's a... That's a really, really good description. You know, it's a, it's like a window into uh, seeing, seeing the world as it is. Um, and you know, no matter what you're cared about, what you care about, whether it's indigenous self determination struggles, whether it's, you know, saving the living world, um, people seeking refuge, uh, climate. Um, you know, uh, anti-mining struggles, whatever it is, there's uh, there's an element of that happening in West Papua for sure. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, I always like to uh, to dig into the history of a subject before we get into what's happening in the present, so that it's a bit mm. more easier to understand. Um, and I guess this really is a colonial story. Um, mm. You've been thinking about this for a very long time. What, what's your understanding of colonialism? Yeah, I've I've been thinking about it for a while. I was drawn in to accompanying the struggle uh, when I first went there in in '91. Um, so you know, it's 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 nearly 30 years for me, and I I travel there uh, regularly, in, invited by folks in the movement. Um, you, look, you're absolutely right. It's definitely an anti-colonial struggle, and and you know. Uh, West Papua is interesting. This is actually the, what's going on right now is actually the third wave of colonisation. You know, they were first colonised. West Papuans were first colonised by the Dutch. Um, then they, in you know, in the forty-five or not forty-five, in the forties, um, they were colonised by the Japanese. Um, not all over the islands, but particularly on the north coast. Um, and the, the Papuans repelled them. There was a uh, an amazing uh, resistance that went on in the 40s in, in places like Biak, for instance, which is an island on the north. It included war tax resistance, uh, included mass strikes, um, you know, that it, that involved uh, more than 50% of the population and included a whole lot of strategic retreats, you know, back to the villages and and jungles and mountains where people kind of lived um, in a way where they weren't kind of governed by, by empire. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then now we've got the third colonisation, uh, which is by the Indonesian state. So West Papuans have, you know, experienced all this heavy, heavy oppression, but they've also, they also know a lot about surviving, 
what it means to to keep going under tremendous odds. So I tell people it's it's not only you know a, a heavy story, it's also a story about these um, amazing people um, right next door to us, um, and such an inspiration to be able to uh, accompany that struggle. Yeah, yeah. So why why are they resisting? Um, I mean, you could start with the Dutch. They got there. They, they were in the rest of Indonesia a lot earlier than they were in Papua, weren't they? Correct. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, what were they What were they doing in Indonesia? Oh, they, I mean, they were like all colonial powers. They were maintaining their empire. At that stage, it was the Dutch East Indies. So the Dutch. You know, when it came to West Papua, they um, they were really trying to, firstly, trying to extend their empire. Then early on, um, they were attracted to the huge resource wealth. It just so happens that, that West Papua is one of the richest places on the planet when it comes to natural resources. Because mm, this is before uh, the advent of oil and coal, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and you know, pretty early on, they discovered oil um, in the west around Sorong, and uh, you know, so the Dutch oil company, which you know later became Shell, uh, was there. And then they also Dutch geologists also discovered gold and copper um, up in the highlands. So. They were very interested in, um, you know, in staking a claim, uh, planting their flag and, and so on, um, you know, on, on West Papua. So that sort of maintained their interest. And then it was all about keeping the empire. Then the Indonesians started to resist the Dutch. Uh, it was a very inspirational anti-colonial struggle. And interestingly... Australians uh, supported that anti-colonial struggle in in Indonesia. You know, we had the Maritime Union of Australia, for instance, which helped blockade hundreds of Dutch ships that stopped them resupplying, um, you know, their their supply lines in Indonesia. So the Indonesians uh, declared independence in 45, uh, and then that was kind of acknowledged in 49, but the Dutch maintained, a, um, you know, a hold on West Papua. So Indonesia became independent, but the Dutch at that stage, yeah, kept uh, kept control of West Papua. Yeah, so there's a bit of a story about the handover, but we won't go there yet. Um, so the, the Dutch are trying to maintain an empire, and I guess... What are they? How are they? How does a colony uh, maintain the empire? What, what's the relationship there? Oh, it's a it's a complex question. Um, you know, the I guess it looks different in in different places. Um, the Dutch were certainly uh, less brutal than the Japanese, um, and what their approach uh, was probably similar to the the British in India. Uh, they brought over uh, Malukans uh, predominantly, which is a group of islands to the west, ne- next to West Papua. So they brought over uh, those folks who kind of acted as a second layer 
So they they sort of administered the territory uh, on on behalf of the Dutch. Um, <laughs> like a middle class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. No, it was exactly. It was like a coordinating class. Um, so that's sort of how it played out uh, in West Papua. Uh, and the folks, they didn't really have a footprint um, in the interior, in the in the remote highlands, um, un- until till much later. And then I guess the, the other thing that they did, of course, you know, Christianity also played, or a particular type of Christianity, you know, played a, uh, an important role in colonisation. So, you know, the Dutch brought over a whole lot of missionaries and... Basically, they, you know, acted as de facto administrators in a lot of places. Yeah, what, um, what brand of Christians were they? It's mostly Protestant, but there were Catholics as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so the legacy of that continues uh, to this day. And you see, you know, the Papuans, Protestantism and, and Catholicism are important parts of people's identity and, you know, uh, expression over there. But it was pretty, it was like a, uh, in one sense, it was a a kind of a benign sort of missionary activity in the sense that people retained control of their land um, and and their resources, with the exception uh, of parts of the West where the, you know, the Dutch... Um, got involved in oil uh, exploration and extraction. Mm-hmm. And how about logging in those early days? Was it possible to log in that sort of terrain? Yeah, yeah, particularly uh, in the in the north and on on the coast, there was a little bit of logging. Uh, it was very small scale. You you haven't didn't see really industrial. Well, from my understanding, didn't see industrial logging, uh, you know, kick off till much later, and that's been mostly by Indonesian companies, uh, Malaysian companies, Korean companies. The, the, the main trade, actually, in those early early years of the Dutch Empire was bird of paradise feathers, um, you know, and there was sort of all the rage in Europe at the time, so... Um, yeah, there's a fair bit of that going on. Yeah, right. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and the other interesting thing about that is, you know, we, we know a lot about the bird of the trade in bird of paradise feathers, but Aboriginal people were also trading bird of paradise feathers uh, with the West Papuans. Um, yeah, so that's that's super interesting. Yeah, mm. yeah, well, I guess they're pretty amazing Bloody little feathers. If anyone's oh, seen the beautiful. David Attenborough yeah. docos on these things. Yeah, 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 that's it. No, yeah. they're uh, amazing. I mean, the country is beautiful and astounding. I, where else in the world can you stand on a glacier or, or on snow and ice and look down on the equator? I mean, that's <laughs> West Papua. It's just a phenomenal place. Yeah, yeah. Now, um... I guess we should introduce the place a bit, but I still want to set the, the, the political context for it a little more. So you've got uh, mm. so you've got a big empires come in. They've spent, I guess, in Indonesia at least, they probably spent 80 to 100 years there before they really moved into West Papua. 
Yep. Um, and what, was was there resistance movements going on in other parts of uh, the, the Dutch East Indies or the Spice Islands, I think they were called as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, whenever you see, whenever there's colonialism, there's always resistance of some kind. Uh, whether it's noticed or not, whether it kind of develops into a full-scale rebellion or not. You know, human beings don't like being controlled and they they like it even less when that's accompanied by violence and, and, and exploitation. So there's definitely resistance. There's also resistance in West Papua as well. Um, you know, there were the Portuguese, Spanish, other colonial powers sort of came and they're... Um, and they kind of kept away, uh, for the most part, because the West Papuans, you know, uh, repelled them. Um, yeah, so yeah, resistance was definitely going on all over the archipelago. Mm-hmm. And, and through, throughout Indonesia, what was the sort of political situation before colonialism? Was there any united sort of country sitting there? Yeah, good question. I mean, there were various empires um in Indonesia itself, so the Mashapahit Empire, uh, you know, was was there for several hundred years, which was uh, heavily influenced by by Buddhism, and you can still see strains of that. And then there was kind of a Hindu wave, and you see strains of that as well in places like Bali and and, and parts of Java. There were local sultanates. Um, you know, so in the Spice Islands or the Lukus, there there was the Sultan of Tidore and the Sultan of Ternate, and and even now in Indonesia, the Sultan of Yogyakarta, for instance, in Java, still plays quite quite a prominent role. Yeah, right. And on that one, I guess you got the Sultan of Brunei, who's one of the richest fellows yeah. in the world. What, yeah, what's a that, Sultanate? That's right. What is a Sultanate? Oh, um. I, I'm not really, I, you know, it's not an area I've looked into much myself. You know, it's it's a kind of feudal ruler, really. Yeah, right. uh, that, that's that's my my sense of it. Um, and certainly in uh, Indonesia, there was you know close connections with Islam uh, as as well, and the and the sultans or you know those local local rulers. Um, were also involved in in the spread of Islam as well, and he actually hadn't. Have Islam got, you know, came touched the west coast of West Papua too? You know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah, you're right. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So you've got all sorts of. I guess you could look at it like a mosaic of all different sort of governance structures all throughout these islands. And how yeah. densely populated yeah. was it then? I mean, now it's extremely dense population. Was it the same back then? Uh, parts of Indonesia, you know, were always densely populated, um, you know, particularly Java, you know, and um, parts of Sumatra and, and Bali. You know, they're very fertile islands, so you had, um, you know, a whole lot of agricultural societies develop around those places. Uh, West Papua was quite different, you know, so whilst you've got sort of rice cultivation, um, in in lots of parts of Indonesia, West Papua, they they were completely different. Um, you know, there was there was no rice. There was uh, next to to no kind of 
political association with other parts of um, Indonesia. And, you know, a lot of folks there were living in in small village structures, um, you know, cultivating local gardens, you know, supplemented by hunting and trade with other other nations on the on the other parts in the other parts of the country in uh, particularly on the coast you had you know sago palm cultivation which is um, you know a, a riverine palm and, and you can eat the starchy uh, heart of the palm and lots of fishing uh, so you know life was pretty good plenty of food around people had time to develop uh, you know, artistic and cultural practices. There was trade, um, you know, going on. And in some places, you know, uh, that trade extended hundreds, if not thousands of kilometres. You know, the the Biak Islanders, for instance, you know, sailed these massive canoes um, all round and you know, you saw the spread of carver, for instance. You know, you got carver in the in the south of West Papua, uh, Wati. There was trade through to the Torres Strait Islands, and you know, as I was saying before, you know, there was trade in birds of paradise feathers that went, you know, right down to the Yalanji, and um, you know, Aboriginal rainforest people around Cairns. So, really extensive networks of exchange. And cooperation. There was, you know, there was also uh, warfare, you know, to uh, to a very limited extent from time to time as well as different groups bumped up against each other. Um, but you know, rich, complex society that was very different um, from what was these kind of societies that were in Indonesia. Mm, interesting. So this idea of 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 empire, I mean, do you reckon that's a, a built-in sort of thing of human nature? Does, is it popped up all over the world, or is it just the little European section of the world that took over? Is that the? Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. You, you look at all of the colonies all over the globe, and they all come from this tiny little section of the Earth in Europe. Uh, what happened there? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's also Asian empires. Um, you know, so there was like the, um, as I was saying, the Japanese, uh, and of course the Indonesians. Uh, the Indonesian state now is running their own form of empire. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's fascinating because when you, you know, I, I kind of think of empires as sort of having four sort of distinct features, you know, they, they've, They've got an extractive relationship to the earth. Uh, they've got hierarchical social relations, you know, and often uh, invest pretty heavily in police and military to control land and resources. They've got, you know, this underlying philosophy, uh, which is really emphasizes competition and uh, hierarchy and often, you know, materialism. And then you have these strategies for resolving conflict that are fundamentally violent. I mean, that's sort of how I think about empire. Other people might think about it differently. But when you look at 
you know, many of the other kinds of West Papuan societies that were going on, you had a very different set of features, you know. You had people that, or societies that were living harmoniously with the land uh, and it was a recognition of kind of interconnectedness and in, and for many, you know, folks, even a sense of sacredness in the land. You know, the land was 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 alive was imbued with spirit you know the the way people related to each other and and lived well together their social relations was uh based on cooperation you know people had roles but those roles were kind of um they were more about interconnectedness and you know everyone sort of had the, a particular place in a in a whole ecosystem, and the, you know the underlying philosophies were very much about um, cooperation. You know, as I was saying before, the kind of connectedness and and, and holiness of life. Um, you know, there was a big emphasis on uh, ancestors and and you know the the acceptance that. Even inanimate, what we would call inanimate objects like rocks and trees, were you know had their own spirit. And then there were you know all these nonviolent ways of mostly nonviolent ways of dealing with conflict, you know, and that was pretty much through in, in Melanesian societies that was mostly through things like dialogue um, and exchange. Um, with, with other groups, and those kind of practices exist right up to this day. You know, Melanesia is really one of the last places touched by colonialism, and and in many ways, you can you know you see those those different expressions uh, that also fuel resistance against you know modern day empires. Mm, I've, I've heard that in uh, in many indigenous cultures, the the one who gets to be the the leader or the chief, so to speak, um, is actually the best negotiator and mediator and and peacemaker. And if you want to compete to be the chief, you've got to be <laughs> the best negotiator. Essentially, would mm. that fit with uh, Melanesian culture? Oh, for sure. The, the, uh, I mean, there's different types of leadership structures in different in different places. Of course, it's a super complex. But yeah, for sure. And you know, the the other thing I really uh, that, that blows me away about Melanesia is that what is wealth? You know, the the person who's considered the wealthiest um, is the one who gives most of it away. Uh, you know, that's how you. Uh, you know, respect is often tied into your ability to be generous and to to circulate wealth. Uh, you know, to participate in these exchanges. Um, yeah, so yeah, well, yeah I'd, I'd love to explore that one a little bit because that, that's um, that's a little little subject. We uh, we do a lot on on new economics and, and looking at old systems. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. giving away as as a form of being rich, how does that actually work in, say, a small community? What's the dynamics of wealth going on there? I mean, if if you look at wealth as a form of energy, um, it's really about keeping that circulating, um, and you know, making sure people's needs are met, and 
and I guess you know underst- understanding needs in a much more expansive way. Um, so I mean, like a place like Vanuatu, you know, which has been a key supporter of West Papua for a while. I mean, they're right now they're kind of developing these alternative economic indicators and stuff, um, and they are creating really interesting systems where, you know, people can, say, pay for school fees or hospital bills through mats, uh, woven mats or pigs or garden food, um, you know, which are really highly valued commodities uh, in Melanesian society. And, and what's considered you know, wealthy or what's considered, you know, a, a good life in, in a place like that is when you have access to, you know, maintain control of your land, you know your language, uh, you've got a, a rich and complex set of community relationships in place. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that is much more valued than the individual accumulation of wealth, which, you know, exists in, in you know, modern capitalist societies um, mm. like Australia. And I just think that's, uh, I think that's a way forward, you know. Uh, more of us could learn, you know, from that way of being. We'd be in a lot better shape. Yeah, I guess it's looking at wealth as a whole community rather than as an individual, isn't it? Exactly, man, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think you're, you're spot on there. Mm. Mm, very interesting, very interesting. Now, I just want to drag you back to um, drag you back to Europe. I mean, mm-hmm. the European colonialism has been unbelievably successful around the globe. I mean, Mm, you look mm. at the globe, it's in all these different colours and each one represents a different empire, essentially, and Mm. it covers the whole thing. There's none of them with no colours, except maybe Antarctica, but I guess it's mixed in with the the Industrial Revolution and the beginning of corporations and and something called enclosures. Are Are you down at all on that sort of history? A little bit, um, you know. My own, you know, interesting through working with the the West Papuans and you know, sort of accompanying that struggle and developing those relationships. I've been really encouraged to look at my own history, um, and you know, develop a bigger story of of my own family. And uh, you know, so my own family, uh, just to sort of make it real personal. We were kicked off our land um, on the Hebrides, the, the Isle of Lewis, in 1850s, and and that was, as you say, all about enclosure. So, you know, the, at that stage, the land was held in common, uh, and you know, then the English and the and the lairds, Scottish landlords, um, who were chiefs, and you know, they were they shifted from caring about the wealth uh, welfare of their people to, you know, more thinking about their own personal wealth of their estate. They started to push the people off and, and farm sheep and, you know, literally, you know, fence things, fence the land off. And so, you know, my, that was the story of my own family. You know, we then were sort of fled to to Glasgow and kind of, you know, eked out a survival there and 
then given you know money from the church um, to migrate just because there were too many too many people in the cities and it was just not sustainable. So yeah, that that whole process of taking control of things that were held in common, whether it's land or water uh, or forests, and turning them into private wealth. Uh, is gone, you know, exactly as you say, it's gone hand in hand with empire and and certainly industrialization and, um, you know, and, and Europe has, has driven that uh, for sure. So I guess you're describing again that transformation from wealth being considered as a community sort of uh, thing, I guess, <laughs> into a, an individualist sort of look at... Uh, thing at it now the lords sort of they were the owners so to speak still and and in a communal sort of society the 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 wool would have been used to make some clothing and blankets and stuff and it wouldn't have been much more value past that but they saw an opportunity to um to be able to sell a whole lot of wool what, what, what was the market in wool all about i mean that wasn't there before and suddenly kabang yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know too yeah. much about that, but it's you know it's it's definitely then transformed into kind of capitalism, um, um, you know, accumulating uh, accumulating wealth and and then seeing land as as a commodity and and the same thing happened before before wool it was um, you know seaweed there for a while. Oh so, really? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, and that got tied into imp- uh, into wars too, you know, the Napoleonic Wars and all that sort of stuff. Of as course, well. of course. Mm. Yeah. Nah, it's interesting. The, the the things I've heard are about um, the uh, the weaving mills and how when the production of clothing became a lot cheaper because of the industrialisation of it all, which of course ties of course. It, ties in with the Luddites. That created a market for wool, which wasn't there. So. Mm. Whoever Ooh. could grow a whole lot of wool could sell it at a premium price to these new industrialists, and uh, that was the end of it all, really. Yeah, absolutely. And then that created, you know, uh, more of an impetus for like control of other places, you know, India, and then mm. it was, you know, they were trying to get indigo to dye the dye the cloth that was, you know, uh, made in those industrial mills in Lancashire and places like that. So yeah, good point. Yeah, definitely. That's right, and you you need to form some uh, some conglomerations of people to go over there and get it, of course. And that's the that's right. There's your corporation hierarchy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Amazing yeah. little con- conflagration of stuff coming out of this little point in time. That's right, but it's good to unpack it, isn't it? You know, to to just remind ourselves that these aren't natural phenomenon. You know, that these were these have been structures and and patterns of behaviour that have been created by human beings, and we're not at the mercy of that. You know, we can refashion other ways of of living together and being together and and thinking about economics. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of the world was covered in. The community sort of mindset before it was the uh, individualist homo economicus sort of mindset, which is yep. really only applicable in my life. The people I know, I don't know anyone like that. I would think they're a complete lunatic. They seem to be mm. all in the ruling class, mm. which mm. is odd, you yep. know. Yeah, uh, the one percent, hey. Yes, yes, it's odd. All right, now we've probably covered enough about this, but. Um, 
I guess I wanted to really unpack that as the context for uh, for what's happened in West Papua. Now, the Dutch the Dutch Empire was was colonising uh, Indonesia, including West Papua, and um, yeah, the Japanese came in, routed the Dutch for a bit, and um, the Dutch decided they'd jump back in once the Japanese were beat, and that gave the Indonesian people ideas. They thought, geez, you know, these Dutch aren't invincible. Mm, exactly, and, um, exactly. There was a, an amazing bloke called um, Sukarno. Mm, mm. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, so, um, you know, he he basically, well, towards the, the end of the, the Dutch control of, of West Papua, uh, he was keen to, he was kind of, you know, building, establishing his rule, and he started to talk about, um, you know, the the fact that all of Indonesia was all of the Dutch East Indies, which is kind of a bizarre concept, really. It's like saying all of England should be all the British Empire or all of Spain should be all the Spanish Empire and that all the countries in Latin America that the Spanish were in should be one country. Um but anyway, Sukarno pushed this idea and, you know, talked about the, you know, basically was saying, look, this anti-imperialist struggle against the Dutch isn't complete until we get back uh, West Papua. Um, so he, he really started to, you know, cultivate that idea um, in, in people's mind. And then that led to a whole bunch of other Events, including a you know a, a small scale invasion uh, of of West Papua, led by Sukarno. Yeah, yeah. So I guess this is really an, quite an extreme form of nationalism when you look at it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's, and that continues to this day. Uh, you know, even the progressive Indonesia or so called progressive Indonesians, many of them feel that West Papua is part of Indonesia and they see themselves as uh, still as anti-colonialists. It's kind of this this like mainstream ultra-nationalist cluelessness that, uh, you know, and this is a generalisation, but that a lot of Indonesians have. And they it's, it's dawned on a few people, uh, you know, there's groups like the Front Rakyat Indonesia and took West Papua or Free West Papua, which is a a group of Indonesians in 18 different cities across Indonesia who support self-determination for West Papua. So they're, they're kind of cottoned onto the idea of, you know, oh my gosh, we're, we're colonisers uh, in West Papua in the same way that, you know, um, some folks in Australia have started to, to realise that about, uh, you know, Europeans in Australia, that there's, there's a colonial project that's still ongoing and that doesn't really help them either. You know, it's not in our interest, to, in ordinary people's interest, to oppress another group of people. Mm, now that's interesting. I mean, what what do you reckon are the barriers to a culture for realising that they are actually continuing a, a, a time-honoured tradition of colonialism? It's, I guess oh, it's one geez. of those things that's so in your face that it's hard to see. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's a really deep question. Um, 
I, I, I mean, I think one of the ways I think about it is, is you know, this idea of kind of a mainstream cluelessness. So I think one of the features is that it gets hard to see. Um, you know, people don't don't like to see themselves as being being colonial. Uh, so they kind of become very defensive and and closed off. So one of the things that's probably really important for all of us, because uh, we're all mainstream in some ways, is just to be open to different voices, um, being willing to kind of reflect and examine our own lives and the kind of historical and political and economic processes that we're caught up in. I think that's that's really critical, that kind of uh, individual and collective work. Mm. You know, the kind of discussion that you're you're promoting here on, you know, right now is, I think, is part of that. Support your local community radio, guys and girls. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, right. So I, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. Um, oh, geez, I can't remember who it was, but one of the Aboriginal people I've been talking to said they were absolutely furious when they were teenagers and they asked their, their parents, well, why on earth are they doing all of this? And they said, well, they just don't know what they're doing. And that sort of fits in quite well with your answer and it's a very compassionate way to look at it, really. Yeah. It, it gets pretty ugly. It gets super ugly, man, and it's, and it's playing out right now. Uh, it gets, you know, in, in West Papua, it manifests as the most vicious and violent form of racism. Um, you know, and I... You know, now compared to say Australia, you know, two hundred plus years ago, when you know the pointy end of colonisation was sort of playing out here, is that in you know you could ask that that we know better. We should know better. You know, we've got sort of more historical awareness. But the key thing is that you you know you've got helicopter gunships. You know, you've got modern weapons. You've got you know, phosphorus bombs and, you know, other other kind of weapons that you can deploy against people. And that's that's certainly what the Indonesian state's doing in West Papua. And they're also using this, this mentality, this kind of their right to control other people and other land as a justification to form, you know, militias and, and things like that. So... Yeah, you're absolutely right. It gets very, very ugly. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that ugliness is, is has been, I guess, I don't know, you, you said the Dutch were reasonably light touch for a colonial power, but uh, when um, when Sukarno um, conducted the revolution uh, uh, and kicked the Dutch out, they got a lot of... Uh, a lot of backing from the uh, the Russians, and of course, we're deep in the middle of the Cold War here. So that's right. There that's was a, right. There was um, there was uh, some kickback to that after a few years. Um, tell us about the coup. Yeah, well, look before before we get on to the coup, which was in '65. You know, I think Sakana. I mean, Sakana was a very, uh, you know clever sort of ruler in the way he was able to sort of play different groups off against each other. 
So you're, you're exactly right. He recruited the Russians and uh, Khrushchev actually, you know, came and visited him in Bali. And, um, and of course, this is the height of the Cold War. Uh, so the Kennedy administration in, in the US, they sort of sit up and go, oh, my God, what's happening here? This is the, you know, the domino effect, this idea of, you know, communism spreading spreading through Asia and, you know, one country falling after another. So they said, oh, no, you know, it's a domino effect. <laughs> We're going to lose our colonies. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And they, of course, that's right. And, of course, they knew um, about the gold and copper that was in West Papua. And, I mean, the oil was common knowledge, but they knew this massive uh, deposit that existed in, in the mountains. Um, so Kennedy says, geez, we've got to do something. So he gets the Australians on board and he gets the Dutch and he, he hosts a meeting in New York um, in August. And, uh, you know, they sign uh, what's called the New York Agreement, which is basically, you know, he saw the writing on the wall, you know, we've... You know, we've got to do something. Sakano's got a point. You know, you, the Dutch, you're still controlling this empire. This is really uh, unsustainable. Let's see if we can create some other arrangement that allows us to keep control, um, but, you know, at least give the appearance of uh, some sort of, you know, benign uh, or, you know, a better kind of governance arrangement. So, anyway, they signed this agreement. Now, no West Papuans were present at that meeting. You know, it was... <laughs> if you define colonialism as one one mob kind of uh, deciding what happens to another mob, that's, that's exactly what was happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, so no West Papuans were there. There was one kind of redeeming feature about that agreement, um, and that was that the Dutch said, all right, let's have a referendum. Let's allow the people of West Papua uh, universal suffrage to just, you know, one person, one vote to decide whether they want to be their own country, you know, whether they want to be part of uh, whatever arrangement, whether it's, you know, Indonesia or, or Dutch. They, they didn't kind of spell out the arrangements, but they were really clear that there needed to be a referendum in West Papua. So that was the one kind of uh, redeeming feature of that New York agreement back in um, in 62. Then Sukarno led the, led the invasion. Um, the, the New York agreement... Yeah, that's the invasion of West Papua. Yeah, that's right. Now, that was uh, repulsed by a combination of the West Papuans and, and the Dutch, but that sort of accelerated things and using the New York agreement as a basis um, the United Nations said well look we'll step in uh, and we'll administer the territory until we can work out uh, you know who gets control of it mm-hmm. so, I guess now, from, the, so, from the Indonesians point of view they've got this massive nationalist idea of one end of the country to the other, which includes West Papua, and here's these ungrateful little buggers down there fighting against us. Yeah, well, they, yeah. That, they that, would have been that outraged. Was, that was exactly their perspective. But, you know, they they agreed 
to to the UN taking control. And this was the first time, you know, now it's it's pretty common, you know, you've you've had you we had a UN um transition authority in East Timor and it's been in you know a bunch of other countries. But this was the first time it happened. Uh they had, I think they had nineteen staff. They were there for nine months and eventually it was there was pressure from uh Sukarno and and they said, All right, we'll hand over administrative control to Indonesia. So they basically had, the UN handed control to Indonesia on the first of May '63. First thing they did was, you know, gather up all the cultural artifacts, all, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, and burn it. Uh, they took all the wealth from the Dutch back to Java, uh, and pretty much from that point on, you started to see resistance against the Indonesian rule. And the Indonesians responded through repressive policing, through aerial bombardment. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a full-on war that that raged for several years, up until '65, when, as you pointed out, there was that coup. So inside Indonesia, so Sukarno was ousted by a bloke by the name of Suharto, uh, who you know um, was a general. And he basically set Indonesia up as an authoritarian uh, state, and he was he was essentially a dictator. Uh, and then he ruled right Indonesia right up to '98, um, and it was his overthrow that actually, you know, created a bit of space for East Timor to get its independence as well. But that's that's another story. Yeah, yeah. Now that um, that coup. You're going from a regime that, that's courted and encouraged uh, the communist influence in the country. So I, I presume that as a uh, as a big ally with a, a, a quite a uh, I don't know a, a viral sort of ideology um, that there would be an awful lot of communists in Indonesia. Would that be right? Just before the coup, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, the the PKI, the Indonesian Communist. Party was was certainly around, um, but I think what's whether people kind of identify as communist or not is sort of I guess a, a matter of debate. But what is interesting is that there were a whole lot of different collectivist structures. So you know you had student structures, you had uh, farmers uh, unions, you had a whole whole lot of different kind of cooperative structures, mm. and those ordinary people were very politicised and uh, very active in in their local places. And when Sahato came to a to power, he saw those kind of collectivist sort of horizontal. Uh, civil society structures, if you like, as a threat, and very much encouraged by the US, he he went about uh, targeting them in in the most systematic and brutal of ways. Yeah, right. So what you're sort of describing there is a it's a oh geez, it's a it's a continuation of the old ways of the the community wealth sort of thinking um just mm. pr- yeah making its way underneath the colonial system and then uh, 
yeah, getting crushed. How did he go about uh, getting rid of these uh, pesky sort of community ideas? Uh, it was pretty old school sort of way. He, he massacred them. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was uh, using local uh, militias and sort of tapping into some of the, the you know, local elites. Um, and we don't know exactly how many were killed, but it was anywhere between half a million and two million, uh, according to, to scholars. It was It was a genocide. You know, on kind of like Pol Pot and Rwanda, it was it was scale bloodshed. And you know, if you if any of your listeners have been to Bali and you know and gone to some of, some of those resorts, you know, with the beautiful swaying coconut palms and the nice manicured lawns and you know the plush plush hotels there, sitting on top of massacre sites. You know, there were hundreds of thousands that were slaughtered in a place like Bali. Back in '65, and and those killings went all the way through Java and uh, up into Sumatra uh, as well, and um, and that process has kind of also led the foundations for some of the the things that we're dealing with in West Papua today, which is like these uh, ultra nationalist militias, you know, groups like Bansa, for instance, were formed. Uh, Back in the coup, and they're the same. They're one of the same mobs that are organising, um, you know, militia groups um, with machetes and clubs that are attacking West Papuans on the street. Mm-hmm. And I guess the militia was a, a very well established method of uh, repression in East Timor as well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's um, you know it's been part of uh, sort of the fabric of Indonesia for several generations now, and uh, and I think you know there was a process of brutalisation and kind of terror and fear that happened in Indonesia, which has translated into a very hard ultra nationalist core at the centre of um, you know the Indonesian police and the Indonesian military and. That's been reinforced by, a, you know, a, a, a highly nationalist or ultra-nationalist form of Islam as well, which is, you know, been in service of the state. I mean, there are other, there are other versions of Islam which, are, uh, you know, are much more orientated towards social justice yeah, and, course, you know, yeah. and comp- compassion. But, you know, in the same way Christianity has been at the service of state and colonialism, uh, that same dynamic uh, was ha- was happening in Indonesia as well. Yeah, and I guess uh, Aceh, I don't know much about Aceh up in the north there, but um, that's another separatist sort of area, or was until the uh, the tidal wave came in and smashed it. Mm-hmm. Do you know if that's still continuing up there? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, there's not the full-blown independent struggle um, that we saw before the tsunami. Uh, but, uh, you know, they have a much more genuine form of autonomy. They're allowed to fly their own flag. They've got kind of their own people in in power. The GAM, the Gerakan Medeka or the Free Ache movement, was transformed, which was a you know uh, a self-determination organisation um, struggling for independence. That was transformed into a political party. 
So, I mean, mm. leaving aside the question of where, you know, what the Archonese do or don't want, I think it showed that in at least one part of the country, the Indonesian government was able to accept much more autonomy, was able to, you know, uh, uh, to some extent allow the Archonese to rule themselves. Now, that's not what's happening in West Papua at all. It's a um, They don't allow the flag. That's banned outright. There's no local Papuan political parties banned. Um, and even up until very recently, even the cultural expressions of being Melanesian were, you know, responded with, with violence and people were jailed and in, in a number of cases they were killed. You know, the guy Arnold App, musician, uh, was murdered by the Indonesian Kapasas, the Indonesian Special Forces in 84, simply for collecting songs and dances uh, from different indigenous nations around Papua, West Papua. Yeah, yeah, it's odd, isn't it? Um, now, that that's another sort of difference between um, the, main, the mainland, if you can call it that, of, of Indonesia, and and West Papua is the the Melanesian nature of the people there. Um, who are the Melanesians, just briefly? Yeah, so um, you know, it's distinct um, groups of people: uh, black skin, curly hair, long, uh, you know, attachment to land. Uh, you know, highly valuing dialogue, as you were talking about before. And so these are, are sort of diverse and complex societies that exist in, in you know, places like uh, West Papua, Papua New Guinea, right across to uh, the Solomons, uh, Kanaki, uh, another uh, a French uh, colony, uh, is New Caledonia in some circles. Uh, Fiji, you'll find, uh, you know, Melanesians there, Vanuatu. Um, yeah, so, um, I mean, in some ways these are sort of made-up terms by by anthropologists mm-hmm. and stuff, and, you know, and you can't... In, in reality, there's not clearly delineated lines, but, you know, it's fair to say, you know, distinct, distinct people who have, you know... Uh, long, long traditions and, you know, really diverse cultures. I think linguistically, uh, it's probably the diverse, most diverse group on the planet. And the island of New Guinea, for instance, has over 1,200 languages, which is something like 15% of the world's linguistic diversity right there. So it's incredibly rich uh, culturally advanced, you know, sophisticated place, um, you know, place of, you know, incredible human beauty. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's remarkable, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. The, you've got this um, quite a different culture and, and quite a different uh, appearance as well from, from most of uh, Indonesia. You've, you've got mm. this... Um, you got this resistance to the Indonesians who sort of, sort of, in their opinion, are, are uniting the nation, uh, mm. as is their birthright. Mm. And so this, I guess, some of the other sort of cultural clashes. I mean, here are these uh, here are these Highland people, for instance, um, 
they've forever they've been walking around with, with penis gourds, driving pigs around. Um, can you explain the, the penis gourd attire? It's obviously uh, pretty hot, so you don't need to wear a lot of clothes. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it's a, a, it's that it comes from a plant, and it's you know a, a sheath that that goes over the the penis that's worn by. Uh, by Highland men, and it's um, yeah, you know, it's just it's one of the the forms of of dress or custom, I guess, that's emerged. It's prominent in uh, a lot of Melanesian places, um, but in West Papua, particularly in the Highlands. Mm, um, I mean, they're pretty tough. Yeah. They're pretty tough people, but you don't want blackberries in certain spots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, no, exactly. It's, it's a form of protection, you know, if you're out, you're out working in the garden and stuff like that. Um, mm. Yeah, but, yeah, no, it's, um, it's the kind of place where the climate, I guess, is conducive. You know, you don't need uh, thick, woolly, woolly clothes um, in most parts of, of that country, although if you head up to the, the highest mountains, um, it gets there's ice and snow there, but of course there's you know there's no villages up there. Yeah, yep. You could make a green possum skin cloak or something, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it. And is uh, well, you know, and, and when you talk about fauna and stuff, um, you know, you've got kangaroos in the south. You've got your tree kangaroos and couscous. So, and in the south, uh, you know, around Moralke. Uh, that part of West Papua, you know, you've got these big termite nests and savannah country. It looks very similar to Australia, and it's just kind of visual reminder, of course, that you know the uh, New Guinea and Australia were once the same landform, uh, and people, you know, travelled across that that landmass. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, very much. So you've you've got this this cultural clash. I mean, particularly with the the Muslim side of. Um uh, Indonesia, where, where pigs are considered, which they've got in common with Jewish sort of cultures, pigs are like a bit sort of on the evil side, I guess. Haram, yeah. Yeah, and um, <laughs> yeah. so you can just see this cultural clash of turning up in this place where there's people are fighting, yeah, they're supposed to be part of your country, they're running around with pigs for God's sake and all this stuff. So it, it's wound up in, in a, it's a level of hatred that's really quite intense isn't it in in play yeah in play for sure in in parts and amongst some um you know people absolutely and it's fueled by that that real difference you know um that that you're talking about but of course there's always other stories going on. All right, um, yeah, we'll get there in a tick. We'll yeah. get there in a tick. Do you want to just explain divide and rule? Because this sort of situation is absolutely perfect for divide and rule, which is a, a very common tactic for empires and colonies. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that's totally what's what's happening in West Papua. So it's really, you know, this idea where the way to keep control of of your empire is to, you know, give benefits to to one particular group, not a lot, but you know, a, a few breadcrumbs, relatively speaking, and then set them against another group. Uh, um, and you know, if 
if you can keep people fighting each other, um, then you can just go on and, and keep controlling uh, the, the territory and the wealth. Um, so that's, that's the whole idea. It's in the interests of colonial forces to, to promote disunity and infighting to yeah, maintain control of the wealth. It's kind of as simple as that, really. Yes, and you can see it at work in our own culture as well, can't you? Oh, it's everywhere, you know. <laughs> it's it's the, one of the oldest tactics, you know, in the in the colonial rulebook. Yep, yep. Now, the opposite of divide and rule them, we'll get on to some of the more positive stuff now. I mean, oh, we could plumb the depths of the violence that's going on, but it's, it's I don't know, we probably should touch on it. What's, um, what happened, like... You've mentioned that raising the flag is illegal. Now, this is a pretty uh, pretty innocent sort of act, you know. It's non-violent. It's just mm. showing your political opinion, essentially. What's mm. likely to happen to somebody who uh, who raises a West Papuan flag in the wrong spot? Yeah. Um, so the Morning Star flag is the West Papuan flag. Um, it's... If, well, you know, it's, in the past, people have been shot dead, and and you know, and you know, even very, very recently, we're, we're jailed up to fifteen years, and people are currently, you know, my my friend uh, Sayang Mandabayang, a, a young woman, is you know, breastfeeding her youngest child at the moment. Is uh, she's been charged with treason for printing 1,500 of these flags um, and, you know, uh, carrying them in a suitcase to support uh, West Papuans engaged in non-violent demonstrations. So now in Indonesia, the charge of treason can carry the death penalty. That's still on the books. Um, and, you know, as you say, it's, it's a non-violent expression of, of a political opinion, and it's the kind of thing that is tolerated in, in democratic societies. But West Papua is not a democracy. It's, it's, a, it's a violent, authoritarian, um, you know, rule that's uh, from the Indonesian government that's going on there, and they just... Uh, the Indonesian government just cannot seem to tolerate people expressing a different political opinion. Um, so every time people do that, they crack down. Now, what's the am the amazing thing is in the last 10, at least the last 10 years, you've seen West Papuans re and on, on mass overthrowing this deep fear of the Indonesian state and being willing to express their culture and identity, uh, including um, expressing or showing the flag. So you go to West Papua now and you will see young women and, and men, you know, with the Morning Star flag stitched into these string bags they call the knockin'. Uh, you'll see it with them painted on their face and they'll be doing this in front of Indonesian police and military and uh, 
you know, the Indonesian police and military will say, you know, what are you doing with that? And they say, this is just a bag. And what are you doing with that face paint? This is just face paint. Now, you know, some of them get beaten up, um, sometimes very badly. Sometimes people get killed. But, and because there's laws, the Indonesian government has a law forbidding the expression the display of the Morning Star flag and other symbols of, of West Papuan self-determination. But they have lost control. They, they have lost control of the country. And, you know, you have young Papuans who've grown up under Indonesia their whole life, and if, any of, if anyone was going to be loyal to Indonesia, it would be that young generation who just feel no loyalty to the Indonesian state and uh, in large numbers and in different ways have started expressing this identity that is different to being Indonesian. Um, such amazing dynamic, you know, on the one hand, the most violent kind of repression uh, and on the other hand, this incredible fearlessness and, and cultural pride. Mm, and I guess another another weapon of the uh, the state and the empire is is secrecy. So this is not uh, getting spread all over the world's news, is it? No, it's um, you know for a, for a large part of our lives, Scotty. You know this this was a hidden story, a secret story, and the Australian government um, and Australian media outlets have played a very critical role in keeping a lid on this story. Um, but, you know, with the advent of the mobile phone and cameras and and the ability to transfer stories and information, you're starting to see the this, this story come out. And, um, you know, and I imagine your Facebook feed in the last couple of... Uh, if you're on that uh, fake your book. Trying to avoid um, it, yeah. You know, yeah, good on you, man. Good on you. You're waging the revolution right there, you know. But for those who are on um, on social media, you know, that, that story is just, it's it's starting to circulate through and and certainly, you know, through other forms of media, community radio being a being a great example, you know, the, the story is starting to get out. It's uh, filtering occasionally into the mainstream uh, news, but for the most part, uh, you know, elites, governments and corporations are keeping a lid on this uh, as much as they can, but they're also losing control, uh, and the story is getting out through all sorts of different ways. Yeah, now I guess um, Carl Polanyi was a bloke who wrote in the 40s about um, about the emergence of, of capitalism and, and how it, it Alongside the the emergence of it came a resistance, and he called it the double movement. And I think a large part of the double movement is a, a, a resistance to this divide and rule stuff. And it's called solidarity. And it's essentially the best way to describe it that I've come across is is by what it's not. It's the opposite of divide and rule. It's standing together and ruling yourself, I guess, um, as a as a mob across mobs. Um, so who are the who are the people who've been standing in, in solidarity with um, with the West Papuans? You, you've mentioned Melanesians. Yeah, it's, it's a good place to start. The Pacific, you know, uh, other Melanesian countries. Uh, Vanuatu is, you know, I mean, they we need to mention them right away. You know, this is a country of, you know, around about 
quarter of a million, less than quarter of a million people, I think, you know, around about that anyway. And they have been absolutely fearless, and they are leading the push uh, at the level of states. But more importantly, you've got ordinary people, um, you know, in places like Vanuatu, who feel like the West Papuans are their family, and they take it very, very personally. Uh, when their sisters and brothers are being shot dead and tortured and thrown in Indonesian prisons. Um, Mm -hmm, For decades. Yeah, that's right. But the kind of solidarity from the Pacific actually has a really, really long history. Um, And, you know, the Pacific were taking notice of West Papua and including West Papua in their structures, Um, you know, for, for a long time. So when when you have groups like the Pacific Conference of Churches, and, you know, uh, the church is a very important part of Pacific society, when that was formed um, in Samoa, the West Papuans were there uh, as part of that, uh, you know, that, that founding that founding uh, movement, you know, right at the, the beginning. So... That kind of solidarity right across the Pacific has has grown, um, and the Canucks, uh, the FLNKS, which is the the Kanaki self determination um, organisation, I think it's the the, uh, the the socialist the the front. What is it? I always get the French mixed up, but it's like the. Uh, the Front for National Socialism and Liberation of the Canucks. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're another group that have been really critical. Uh, I, again, it's odd, even though some of the states at the levels of government have been slow to respond, ordinary people in the Pacific have been very, very responsive. Yeah, so um, we're, we're going to run out of time pretty soon, so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll move along. There's, there's clearly a, a, a fairly... Big groundswell in the Pacific there, but huge, yeah. What about in other parts of the world? Are there are there like little diasporas of refugees who are starting to get Definitely. the word out? Definitely. I mean, I, I want to also mention Indonesia. You know, like it's, mm-hmm. let's not you know play into this whole colonial trap um, and an anti-Indonesian you know get caught up in an anti-Indonesian sentiment because some of the most fearless activists are uh, Indonesian and they're groups like the uh, Free West Papua which is the front rakyat Indonesia and took West Papua and their spokesperson Suryanta you know a friend of mine he's he's currently in jail right now also facing treason so and this this group is amazing they support self-determination and if that means independence they support that as well so they're incredibly brave uh, and are building uh, a very impressive organisation right across Indonesia. Yeah, but then impressive. you talked about, oh, it's great. And the, but you talked about the diaspora too, for sure. The West Papuans themselves are leading the struggle uh, and you have a structure inside and outside the country called the United Liberation Movement uh, for West Papua. Um, and, you know, you've got... Papuans here in Australia, uh, key leaders like Jacob Rumbiak and Paolo Makabori and Rex Rumakiek uh, are part of that and, and other leaders 
elsewhere. Benny Wender, for instance, is uh, in the UK. Is in the UK, yeah, in England, that's right. And then you've got other other Papuan groups, who, you know, who share the dream of, of self determination and uh, and independence um, that are you know forming as well and and you know continuing the struggle in the ways they can. Mm. And then you've got solidarity groups, you know, Free West Papua Campaign, the Australia West Papua Association that I'm a part of, um, you know, and other groups around the world. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what are the best ways for, for people who aren't, uh, aren't hanging around in Indonesia or, um, or West Papua? What, what can we do to, uh, to help out? Because um, it seems like a, a pretty well-entrenched problem. You've got... Um, I mean, we didn't even touch on uh, the the funding of the military. Maybe you should very, very briefly cover how the military's funded in Indonesia. Oh, yes. Yeah. So they get a small portion uh, of their budget from the state, and the rest of their money comes from um, their involvement in legal and illegal businesses. Uh, so they allegedly, run- allegedly. Oh no, allegedly, <laughs> it's pretty documented. You okay. know, they run the illegal wildlife trade, prostitution, uh, gun running, drugs in Freeport. You know, you've got generals who've, you know, groups like uh, Global Witness and others have documented, you know, direct payments to military generals to to provide security. I mean, I saw documentation a little while ago of, of uh, you know, the police receiving millions of dollars from the Freeport, uh, McMoran and Rio Tinto gold and copper mines uh, for lunch money. <laughs> so, you know, their corruption uh, and, you know, siphoning off money through this network of, of um, you know, business operations is, is, a, is a key way they fund themselves. Yeah, so you've mm. got this this massive, and I think Freeport Mine is also like the, the biggest taxpayer in Indonesia, is that right? That's right, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> so yeah. you've got some massive vested interests, and, and the military, of course, is, is very, throughout Indonesia's history, has been very much uh, the same as the state. Um, it's not yes. separated yes. like it is in Australia. Um, yes, that's right. So you've, you've got this massive interest in West Papua. It's not like sort of in East Timor where it was more of a marginal sort of state that they sort of felt they could shed. And, yeah, what's yep. the hope for the future in a couple of quick minutes? Oh, you know, I, I've empires fall. Empires always fall, you know, and I remember doing this workshop with Timorese leaders, you know, in um, 1996, right? And, you know, we started off, imagine in 50 years' time, East Timor's independent. What are the steps that led to that? And we kind of did this visioning, you know, exercise, and which then, you know, merged into a strategy exercise. Now none of us, none of us would have knew back then that in less than three years, uh, East Timor would be having a referendum. You know, empires fall. We just people, you know, found it hard. You know, ten years before the Berlin Wall fall to predict that. You know, people assumed apartheid in South Africa was going to go on forever, and and it's just a mistake. You know, we got to think about which side of history we want to stand on, and I have no doubt. No doubt at all that the West Papuans will be free 
You know, you, a people determined to be free is a force that is unstoppable. Well, I guess even even the terrains on their side, if they can hold out long enough for peak oil to make high energy fuels a lot more expensive, then they're not going to be able to afford to keep running all those helicopters and things. Well, that's that's true also, and you know, and and the Papuans are very skilled, you know, in many parts of that country of kind of living in ways that are invisible to the mm. state. You know, there's lots of self-governing villages over there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so I just encourage your listeners, you know, to, to talk about this story, to to share. You know, many people aren't as well informed as uh, as you, and uh, and I'm sh- no doubt your listeners are a, are a highly informed, you know, group of people. But you know, we we need to get the story out, and I'm I think that the most powerful media is a conversation. You know, so just talk with your friends, talk with your families. Hey, do you, do you know about what's going on in our uh, in our neighbourhood in West Papua? A short swim and and walking distance away from Australia's northernmost border. That's um, right, and I guess if you if you're feeling a bit of fear at crossing that boundary of talking with your workmates about something real, then just imagine wearing your Morning Star face paint in in West Papua. And exactly, it's not that bad, really. Exactly, borrow borrow a bit of courage from our neighbours, you know, just absolutely fearless. And, and you know, I, I I think, you know, when I think of the kind of person I want to be, um, you know, which is a person full of love, a person, you know, fearless, standing up for, for what's right, um, I, I think, you know, well, who, who else is like that? And how can I accompany them and stand with them? And so I think there's an awful lot we can learn from the West Papuan struggle that, you know, going to benefit us um, individually and collectively uh, as well. Uh, just, just an amazing, amazing struggle just happening next door. Yeah, totally is, totally is. Anything else you want to add before we leave it? Uh, oh, there's heaps to, heaps to add. <laughs> there you know, is. We, we missed out on an awful lot. The, the, Indonesia, the training of the Indonesian military and, and police by Australia mm-hmm. and the Lombok Treaty and stuff. But look, just educate yourself. Um, you know, there's lots of resources out there. Find your local group. You know, next time you hear of an event, um, you know, run by the West Papuan community, get along and and you'll find yourself drawn in to this beautiful struggle for freedom. Yeah, yeah. All right. I'm Jason McLeod from the Australian West Papua Association. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scotty. No worries.